Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Heart Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Valdery. My next guest is Corey Muscara, who is incredible, who brings us teachings and wisdom about how to engage in practices like deep listening, how to engage in practices of cultivating loving awareness, including toward the word I just fumbled in my <laughs> description. No, but in all seriousness, uh, I learned a great deal from speaking with him. Corey spent six months meditating in silence at a monastery. And through this practice of meditating in silence, learned how to watch his own patterns, learned how to watch his own triggers, learned how to be still and meet his full complexity with loving awareness. And in this ability to meet his full complexity with loving awareness became empowered to meet the complexity of others with loving awareness. And as you may know, this is the primary teaching at the theory of enchantment. So without saying any more, this is one of my favorite podcast episodes that I've uh, recorded in a long time. It's really, really impacted me deeply, and I hope it does for you as well. And as always, if you like this podcast, if you like this episode, please share with your friends and family and tell them all about what happens when we speak from our heart. Without further ado, enjoy the podcast. I came across you on Instagram. Instagram has been a very, it's been operating according to a very keen algorithm, I'll say. (laughs) I think it's the platform that I'm on that like understands me the most because it's been sending me a lot of good things. And I, I think I also found you after like a week or so after I did ayahuasca, which is interesting. Yeah. Which is interesting timing. I'm so very curious to learn more about your journey, your experience and towards being a monk. And then sort of, I don't know if if it's right to say leaving that lifestyle. I don't know how you would put it, but coming to into a different space, into a different ecosystem. But I'd love to start this conversation by reading the first post that I saw you post on Instagram, if that's okay with you. Sure. And just having a conversation about that. Mm. So this is what I saw. You post, and this is what you wrote. In 2012, I spent six months in silence, living as a monk, meditating 14 plus hours a day. No reading, writing, or contact with the outside world. We woke up at 3 a.m. each day, had two small meals before noon, slept and meditated under mosquito nets. And the mattresses were so thin, you could squeeze them between your fingers and feel the bone on the other side. It was the hardest experience of my life and the most rewarding. When people hear about this, they often want to know what happens when you spend six months meditating in silence. They're usually expecting some trippy, transcendent, ego death type stories. And yes, I have those. But you want to know the biggest thing I got from my time living as a monk. I became my own best friend. Yep, it's as simple as that. And it has made everything in my life easier. I feel like I have a constant inner companion rooting me on, reassuring me and reminding me of what's possible. It's like an inner coziness. I'm so grateful for it, which is why I've committed my life to helping other people experience it too. How does it happen? Many ways, but I'll share how it happens in meditation. When you meditate, you intentionally turn towards your experience with presence and compassion. You choose to meet whatever arises with curious, loving awareness. You learn to be with, relax into, and show steadiness toward all aspects of yourself. 
You replace judgment with understanding, hatred with compassion, and tension with ease. Over time, you develop a deep self-respect because you see just how messy and confusing this human experience is and what it takes to keep showing up for it. Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, it's such a breath of fresh air to read something like that, especially on a platform like Instagram, which I think has its pros and cons, its benefits and its drawbacks. I want to ask you some questions about the deep listening that you learn. But before I do, I'm curious as to what brought you to wanting to become a monk in the first place. <laughs> what was that motivation? Where did that calling come from? Yeah, I think there were two layers to the motivation. There was what we could say is like the more sincere, non-self, just energetic momentum of my life pulling me in that direction that for some ineffable reason, the variables of my life up until age 21 ripened my psychology and intuitive sense Mm. to be interested in that sort of exploration of the human experience. And I think that comes in for people at different stages in their life for different reasons, following difficult circumstance or the rug being pulled out from underneath you or just like a lifetime of suffering Mm -hmm. that you just start asking these deeper questions. For me, I was just having a a bit of a, a quarter life crisis, imagining the next decades of my life being built on this foundation of, you know, coming out of college Mm -hmm. and not sure what, if it was going to lead to happiness or fulfillment Mm -hmm. or, or anything I actually could look back on and go, oh, that was a life worth living. I had ideas, rough ideas of, of that and what I thought would be useful, but I didn't actually know. And it scared me not to know. Mm. And so the, I had written a blog post on it before I left, but one of the things I said is I'm interested in cultivating a happiness that derives from wisdom, not things. Mm. That was like my 21-year-old's orientation to it. And the grandiose idea was like, I'm going to strip myself of everything that brings me comfort and happiness and identity. And then I'm going to find the happiness at the core. And then I'm going to come back and basically everything else will no longer trigger me or be an issue. I'll just like, I'll have my fundamental thing and everything else kind of will build around it, which is a young orientation. But I I still think back to it and I'm like, yeah, that that sounds pretty good. (laughs) Fortunately, it wasn't that easy, but that that was a core intention. How, How might this fulfillment be less contingent upon the shifting variables of my external world. Mm. That was the more sincere version. The less sincere, the more egoic, Mm -hmm. which I have a ton of space for in my system, Mm -hmm. is I think I just like the identity of being someone who would go off and do something seemingly cool like that. Yeah, Cool from the perspective of like the 21-year-old who hadn't yet done it. And I would tell people as I was getting into meditation because I thought I was going to go into business for a mm-hmm. while. And and so I started getting into this in college and kind of tell, telling people and running classes around it. And I got a lot of positive feedback from people. It was like mysterious. What's Corey doing? Oh, he's in the meditation. He's going to like <laughs> go live on a mountain somewhere after college. It was, it was confusing, but up to them, but there was intrigue. Mm-hmm. And the part of me that likes to be unique, mm-hmm. part of my ego structure that likes to be unique, which I've had ever since I was a kid, mm-hmm. definitely got enthralled by this. So there was, I often say like the first year of motivation of my spiritual work was primarily praise for my ego. <laughs> it was egoically driven. Mm. And so a combination of those variables is what took me there. Mm-hmm. And then that's when the deep work 
really began. I'm very intrigued by your awareness of the presence of your ego. This is something that I've started opening up to in terms of my own ego in 2020 or as of 2020, which is when I started meditating. And I started meditating in 2020 because, you know, the world shut down and my intuitive sense was like the nervous system of the world seems to be off kilter. So maybe I should work on regulating my own (laughs) somehow. So that's how I got into meditation. And I also discovered Avatar, The Last Airbender in 2020, Mm -hmm. which was just just totally a beautiful, beautiful narrative and paradigm that that changed my world. But I'm curious, was it, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but was it initially very hard to see your ego and to notice it? Because I'm in the process where I'm, I'm doing a practice of trying to notice my ego, notice it rise and fall and write about it and, and sort of say to it, I see you. Mm. And that's a very hard practice uh, for me. So I'm curious what that has been like for you and, and what are some of the tools you picked up Um, as a monk and dealing with that? Yeah, great question. The ego space, when we're referring to the ego, is uh, it's just such tricky territory. Mm. One, even, even trying to define it, I think is a bit tricky, but we could just view it as this like invisible constellation of beliefs and ideas and patterns that are related to and responding to an accumulation of experiences that have told you who you need to be and how you mm. need to behave in order to be safe, protected, loved, and praised. Mm. And so you can just imagine all, all the ways that gets developed from an early age where you come in pretty naked into the world and raw and like a lot of permission for your experience. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're crying and then perhaps the caregiver says like stop crying or mm-hmm. there's their own activation around it and so then there's an internalized sense of i don't get love when i do this and so something comes online that says i need to be this way in order to be okay and received to get these very basic human needs met and so we the reason i think it's important to look at it through that lens and to understand that that is an aspect of the ego is because when you hear it through that lens the first thing I feel is just a tremendous amount of love for mm-hmm. the the young version of me or whoever else who had to bring those patterns online in order to survive the mess of duality. Mm-hmm. And by duality, I mean just like the, the fundamental separation that comes from being in a human existence mm-hmm. where I am me, you are you. We're trying to connect, but we also have our own individual needs. Mm-hmm. It's just like incredibly chaotic, mm-hmm. uh, whoever designed it. <laughs> and so like we're just like fumbling our way through and the ego structure like comes online primarily to protect the the human organism. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I'm working with that and and trying to discern, like, is this a level of ego or is this coming from a deeper place? Like we could say the soul space, the higher self, or Mm -hmm. just like awareness. There's so many ways to frame what's beyond the ego. The first intention I'm bringing is to really hold the entirety of it with Mm -hmm. a ton of love. Mm -hmm. Any sense of trying to beat down the ego or even trying to transcend the Mm. ego, which I think is a very complicated word, Mm. creates an oppositional relationship to one's experience. And that opposition- So more duality. Yes. Yeah. And it's while well, I'll say, like, if, if you actually want to transcend, you first need to befriend mm-hmm. because that the energy of trying to get away from this thing of like, I shouldn't be this way. I need to transcend. It 
imbued in that is uh, subtle threads of of hatred, of resistance. And that's the opposite of whatever the enlightened or transcendent state is. And so it's a bit counterintuitive to love this thing that seems to be causing so much distress or frustration, but that's always the starting point. And so then (laughs) the other frustrating aspect of like the ego journey for me is like, I often don't realize things were egoic until Mm. I've reached some new layer of development that allowed me to step outside the boundaries of that particular egoic mindset. Mm -hmm. So essentially until I've like transcended and included a particular way of orienting Mm. to my world that I could realize like, oh, that was a protect mechanism Mm. or, or that sense in that relationship of like, I needed to leave wasn't necessarily because I was following some fundamental truth. It was like, that was actually an avoidance of intimacy, Mm. but I didn't know it at the time. All I just felt was like this tension and that was communicated as like, all right, time to go. Yeah. So that discernment process is, is tricky, but the main thing I'll, I'll say as a heuristic is the ego's communication tends to be noisier, uh, more fearful, constricted, anxious Mm -hmm. or the positive side of anxiety of like lust, explosive Mm. fireworks, kind of like um, perhaps like trauma bonding in a relationship where you come Mm. in and it's like, oh my gosh, I love this person. (laughs) I'm going to, and it's very quick and explosive and it feels like unity, but it's actually like the ego believing like, oh, my issues are going to be solved from this person. Mm. Contrasted with maybe a, a love with someone friend or partner family that actually just feels still and spacious mm. and is like, I'm in me, you're in you. And there's just like a deep connection and knowing they're two very different experiences and the soul space or whatever we would contrast with the ego space in my experience has this still spacious, quiet, non-arguing characteristic. Mm. And the last thing I'll say around this, cause I'm always thinking of one, like my own journey into being able to parse these and even know these as two different things, like happened over years yeah. and tons of questions of falling on my face. So I'm just imagining all the questions that come up for someone around this. Yeah. And to take this stance, I think it also just first requires us agreeing that there is some aspect of ourselves that is separate or distinct from the thoughts and the emotions and the sensations that are running through our experience. Mm. And my first exposure to that was through meditation Mm. to see that there was a place that was just still and aware of all of this, but it wasn't of it. My awareness of my thoughts wasn't thinking. My awareness Mm. of my fear wasn't in fear. My awareness of my pain wasn't in pain. And so that began the the doorway into that mystery of like, oh, if I'm not that, then who am I? And Mm. that becomes a foundation of this ego distinction. Wow. (laughs) I can experience the spaciousness of what you're saying. Mm. Um, It's very profound and it's very liberating and it's also very hard. (laughs) It's so hard. And I think one of the reasons why it's hard is like to go back to something that you just said about this awareness that awareness of my pain is not in pain. Awareness of my thought is sort of beyond the thought itself. I'm, I'm studying a Japanese Zen Buddhist, I want to say philosopher. His last name is Nishitani, um, who wrote a book called the no thingness beyond God or his philosophy is about the no thingness beyond God. And one of the reasons why I find it so very difficult to train in this way is because the 
the structure in which I am, I have been conditioned by, which is here in America, the United States, here in the West, um, is very much, it can be summed up by perhaps an enlightenment value, which is, I think, therefore I am. <laughs> and there's this wide gulf between Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am, and this very, some would say, Eastern metaphysical sensibility, which is, I am not my thought. Mm-hmm. And part of the practice of integration for me personally, but also as I you know, perceive myself, I am a Westerner. I was raised in this, in this context, in this land, et cetera, is like the integration of the East and the West. And I think it lies in that very difficult capacity to meet the ego with unconditional love. Mm. And I wonder what role, I mean, when you say sort of awareness, I hear unconditional love, but I'm curious in a more explicit sense, what role does unconditional love as a concept, as a practice play in your discipline? Yeah, I love all these inquiries. They're so deep and there's so many doors we could go through. Uh, (laughs) But staying on that question, my experience of unconditional love has been, it's been in a, a natural extension of connecting to my own true nature Mm. and in the connecting to my own true nature, recognizing the illusion of the sense of self Mm. or the ways that that creates perceived separation. Mm. And when there's less of a self to defend, the, the natural byproduct of that is a deeper sense of communion Mm. and caring for everyone or everything. It's tricky territory because <laughs> you're also getting into the space of like, well, you need boundaries. Sure, yeah. And you're still, right? This is the tension of duality and spirituality, which is like you're unique human being with human needs. And like there is a connective thread through all of it. I've in general, like the idea of, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts and how you've gone about exploring unconditional love hmm. because the heart space can definitely be nurtured and opened. Uh, through meditation practices like loving kindness, yeah. Tong Glen practice where you're breathing in the suffering of others. I had a Tong like, Glen moment yesterday, by the way, that I want to share with you. <laughs> I'd love to hear it. Yeah. It's just like that, that being like an alchemizing of suffering that I feel that's a very grounding practice to me where you're breathing in the suffering of others or yourself. And the presupposition of being able to do that is that I can hold this. Mm-hmm. If like, if I'm bringing this closer, so there's an inherent strength in just that intention. And then you hold it and you send back out what needs the nutriment for that person or community or being. Mm-hmm. And so that there's something that love starts to feel less conditional in those moments in my experience. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'd love to hear, hear how this has come up for you, especially the Tonglen moment. Yeah. So it's hard. It's, it is the, it is hard because precisely of what you just brought up of the question of boundaries and what role they play. I mean, in in order for form to exist, to come into being, there has to be boundary, right? Um, So yesterday I was on the subway here in New York and it was so crazy because I felt like the universe is toying with me. So I was on the subway and I had my earphones on and I was listening to music and I was vibing and I was having a good time. And I looked out onto the horizon of people in front of me. And I just had a moment where I was just sort of basking and relishing in the full complexity of the human condition. Oh, isn't this beautiful? <laughs> isn't this wonderful? And then I sort of talk about 
awareness, right? I sort of came out of the present moment and sort of float. I was still in the present moment, but I wasn't like in the context because I floated into the music essentially. And so mm. I float into the music and then, you know, my lens filters back into the present moment. And all of a sudden I see this woman in front of me and I can only see her lips moving because I have my earphones on, but she's like irate. She's, it's not directed towards me. It's directed towards someone else. She's irate and clearly uh, passionate about something and clearly angry about something. And I, it takes me about three seconds to realize that something is happening on the subway. And I, and I immediately take off my earphones. And what's happening is this woman is yelling at another woman because she feels like this other woman slighted her disrespectfully. And she is threatening this woman with physical violence. And then the man behind this woman is her husband. And this man mm. is telling his wife to, I'm not going to repeat what he said, but basically to stop what she's doing with the same kind of like cursing, passionate, etc. rhetoric. And the only thing that I knew to do in that moment was to hold the space with as much awareness as possible. Mm. So that's why I immediately took off my, my headphones and I immediately paid attention. But I have to say, I was struck because of the feeling of helplessness isn't quite the right word, but I'll use it here of helplessness in the sense that I, there was a moment where I had the Tonglen moment and I sort of could see that like clearly what this woman was feeling and what she was, the energy that she was directing at this other woman probably had very little to do with this other woman. It probably was like the product of a bunch of other things that had happened in her day, in her weeks, in her life that led up to this moment, because of course, that's how we as human beings work. And so there was a moment where I breathed in the Tonglen and tried to direct that sense of loving awareness towards this person, this situation. But I have to say, later on, as I thought back to this experience, I realized that I went from a feeling of loving compassion towards human beings in general to a bit of a fight, flight, or freeze feeling within my <laughs> within my body, right? That limbic system is firing. Co yeah. Like, combined with a little bit of, let me try to cultivate awareness. Let me try to cultivate awareness, right? Combine, then to Tonglen, like, let me try to breathe. But because I felt to myself, like, I, there's nothing I can do. Like, I wanted so desperately to do something, to, like, say something that could meet the moment. Like, I was like, can, should I sing a song that will break the tension of the subway car? And I didn't do that, and I couldn't do that, and I felt sort of less than as a result. And that less than feeling, actually, it was very subtle, but within me, translated into a superiority complex directed towards the woman who was screaming. <laughs> so I went from loving awareness all the way down to judgment. In the span of like 12 seconds. So yeah, cultivating loving awareness and unconditional love is very, very hard. That's that's my story. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That all just feels extremely healthy to me. <laughs> really? I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Just what else are we supposed to yeah. ask of, like, of ourselves? Are you on the subway in New York City, like navigating your life with so much different stimulation and oh. input. And just the fact that there was like any openness. Yeah at all in any of it, like at any point in any day is just, I think like a massive win for humans in general. Mm. And then like the big win in all of it to me is just the, the level of awareness and the level of permission you have mm. in sharing it. Yeah. Which for, on, in my own journey with all of this stuff, which these triggers just, they don't go away. Certain ones do, or mm -hmm. they dampen, or I get more clarity around them. But there's always some other situation that's going to activate something in this like very dense structure of Corey that, that 
it's like slowly softening over time. Yeah. And so when it arises it, for me, then and then I like reground to reflect on it. It's I think just really helpful to bring some whatever character strength works for you. So for some people, it's humor. Mm. Uh, for others, it's you know, maybe some level of just like discernment. Yeah. But I really like just like giving yourself permission to have the layers of that. Mm. Because if we add more shame onto it, that's where those patterns, they end up doubling down in some way, or we're just adding another pattern to a dysfunctional pattern. And then we end up projecting whatever the root of that thing was right onto someone else. So in this case, like the beauty of being able to name it and step into a superiority complex, just like, yeah, that sounds like a great defense mechanism (laughs) as a human to like create some safety in a situation and then to be able to name it. Now we're just like getting to talk about whatever the next evolution of our species. And it's like, yeah, it might exist in these moments where we actually have the capacity with metacognition awareness itself Mm -hmm. to go, what is a different response here? Mm -hmm. How was it in, like, how has it been since then? Like when you reflect on those moments, like what was the regrounding process? Mm. When did you become aware of the superiority Mm. coming in? I became aware of the superiority. So I, I, I have a practice where I do like shadow work at night where I journal about how I saw my ego rise and fall in specific moments throughout the day. And I didn't actually, I don't think I wrote about this particular incident, but I thought about it. And I realized when I thought about it, that my judgmental posture towards this woman was actually a reflection of me being terrified (laughs) (laughs) of of like the possibilities of what could go down on the train. I also like, Immediately, I saw my friends after I got off the subway and like I almost immediately told them about the incident and asked them, like, what would you have done in this situation? Like, because one of my friends is a therapist, another one is in the world of like peacemaking. And so I was like, was it wrong that I didn't say anything? Was it like so just grounding in that way and, and sort of expressing with other people who are also wrestling with these issues was really helpful. I, I think it's important to be able to discharge in a way, you know, I know that Brene Brown and her talk on vulnerability said that in the psychology, the psychological study of blame, blame is a way to discharge pain. Mm. And so, Mm -hmm. and you know, we have, we need to be able to discharge and we need to be held, talk about boundaries, right. In containers that are able to hold our discharging. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I'm very grateful that I have a friend group that is able to hold that for me. Uh, So that's, that's how I regard it. That's great. Yeah, the whole conversation around discharge, especially combined with like we were talking about culture or Western culture, mm-hmm. which is quite in general, like disembodied yeah. and sterilized and domesticated. Yeah. And there's like a, a lot of, I mean, I just grew up with it. What's the way to tie this into spirituality? I, I will say it's for my particular survival mechanism, which is more of a freeze response than it mm. is a fight or a flight response. Meditation was a very comfortable way to explore spirituality Mm. without necessarily realizing at times that I was just playing into the comfort of particular protective mechanisms. Oh, interesting. In the sense of like, I could easily get into this like, oh, I feel grounded and good 
and holy <laughs> and I'm just going to be aware of everything that's happening. Yeah. And it's like the freeze response masquerading as wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's its most comfortable yeah. thing. The harder thing would be to bring my voice in yeah. or to like move into the conflict or to bring more of the animal of my body yeah. into the experience in a way that can all be done in an integrated, healthy, aligned way. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, This has been a bigger development for me in recent years, but I don't believe spirituality needs to look like the caricatured version of it that we're given Mm. with certain contemplative practices of just like stillness, soft smile, Mm. complete non-reaction. It can express that way, but the way truth can move through the system, through the body, it's still a body. It doesn't matter how enlightened you are. You're going to have food needs. You're going to have desires. It's going to need to express. It's going to need to shake. And so just in the context of like discharge situations like that, you know, typically we might have easy space to like turn away and move, move away or like move our body or engage in more animal like ways. But here instead, it's like, I kind of just have to sit here Mm. and there's like the appropriate side of it. And yeah, it would probably get strange if you got on all fours and were like, you know, (laughs) bobbing in and out like like uh, an animal. It's like, what's going on? Yeah. And so it just complicates Mm. this, the situation even more. And then we have our different ways of discharging. It's my long winded way of saying, I have just so much compassion and understanding for why moments like that are tricky Mm -hmm. and the infinite number of of permutations that could take in terms of how we respond. And then basically what we're left with at the end of the day is just our own discernment in any given moment, given the variables that are here, what feels like the true way for me to respond right now. Yeah. That's just really, really all we have. Yeah. And and we pick up, we have feedback, source from friends like you did, but that just fuels the next moment of that kind of checking in and discernment. Yeah. I think my next mission, which will always be my next mission (laughs) and will always be my next quest. I mean, this is the task, the task of unconditional love. And my experience with ayahuasca really taught me a layer of this that I hadn't uh, had access to before. It, the grounding and unconditional love is this capacity to meet every moment, whether it's being triggered, whether it's being aware, whether it's being contemplative, whether it's being angry, right? Whether it's going on all fours or going into the freeze response, right? The mm-hmm. practice of unconditional love, which is why it's so hard, is to meet all of those moments in unconditional love, right? And yeah. that's the practice. Mm-hmm. That's the practice. And that's terrifying in many ways. <laughs> yeah. That's so important, Chloe. And I hope for, you know, all of us listening and participating in this conversation that we really hear that point. Because mm-hmm. I think this is one of the reasons why I don't talk explicitly about things like unconditional love is because it can so easily, if it's misunderstood, go into the territory of spiritual bypassing, mm. where you try to embody a certain state prematurely mm. when the actual state is anger and frustration and resentment and fear, especially in relationship. And if we mask those in the spirit of trying to perform Mm. unconditional love, it's really not unconditional love. It's not coming from a clean place. It's coming from a mental place. And it's coming from a place with hooks. Like I'm going to, I'm doing this so that I get a response from you or so I'm perceived a certain way or even a better intention. I'm doing this because I think it's the right thing to do, but it's not coming from a full embodied clean place. Mm. And that's why, you know, the I, I'm more interested in meeting someone in the aliveness of their their system and starting there 
and meeting that with the unconditional love and the full permission and let what needs to discharge and release and integrate happen. And in my experience, the extension of an integrated system that has permission is one of love and openness and curiosity. But otherwise, if the system doesn't feel safe in itself, Mm-hmm. It will continue to play out protective defensive mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And there's just most of us are we're walking around for so many different reasons with deep levels of unsafety in the system that I think yeah. first need to be met and addressed and held. Yeah, um, such a great and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Elegant paradox in that. Mm. <laughs> in that because yeah, it can I feel like it can feel profoundly. I mean, and it is to a certain extent, it is profoundly unsafe to question or go into the quest of meeting and interrogating your patterns, your thought processes, your systems that you've composted within yourself for the past, not just within your lifetime, <laughs> actually, but the mm-hmm. your parents, what your parents passed down to you and what their parents passed down to them and the ideologies that were passed down to them and the larger... Co- I mean, this is the work of a lifetime. It is the work of generations. And so I think it's important for people to to, to understand the strength that is required or, or the practice that is required to cultivate the strength to take on this mm-hmm. work. So I just wanted to say that. And I'm very curious also. So I've been seriously practicing guitar for the past three months. Cool. (laughs) And I've always loved music. I was born in New Orleans, the birthplace of jazz. And so I was seeped in in a musical environment. And I've always found it fascinating as a as a different language. And I'm finding that practicing guitar is really changing my capacity to listen Mm. and it's training me to become attuned in a way that I I haven't been in a long time and so I'm curious for you what your experience of sitting in silence for months how that has impacted your capacity to listen and I would just love to hear you talk about that (laughs) what that's been been like for you yeah so for those Maybe wanting a little more context, the key experience that Chloe brought in at the beginning that I had about 10 years ago now, it was the, the beginning of my teaching and meditation journey. Uh, it was a six month, six and a half month silent meditation retreat. And we'd wake up every morning at 3 a.m., go to bed around 10 p.m. earliest. And, and we have to do a minimum of 14 hours of meditation practice, hour of sitting meditation, hour of walking meditation. And there's one talk every day for an hour. So you get some instruction during that. And then you can chat with your teacher once every few days for about five minutes and just share like what's coming up. So you get a little <laughs> bit of talking there. Wow. Yeah. So you better come up with good questions because <laughs> you only got a few minutes. And so that you're really left to your own experience. And it's a really, I find it to be a very fascinating laboratory mm-hmm. where you're the, like the researcher of your experience and you're also the subject. And the power of silence is, and stillness as well, is that there is a lot of ways that we typically subconsciously avoid and deflect what's uncomfortable in our experience. Sitting down, we feel bored and pick out our phone and go on Instagram, which is way more entertaining than seemingly like doing nothing. Or we're 
in an argument and we get uncom- something gets triggered, we get uncomfortable and like, I can't talk right now and we storm out the room. So there's all these ways that we're typically deflecting. When you have the container of stillness and of silence like that, one, you're not, you can't distract yourself with something that you just want to say or share. Like, so that energy then gets recycled back into you. Mm. And the stillness, we're doing a combination of stillness and, and some movement, but the stillness, all the different ways that we might typically want to move away from something by moving the body that's an opportunity to actually meet the discomfort of that and understand it on a deeper level and like what the source of it is and just feel how deeply compelling and seductive some of these internal states are in terms of what they pull us into in our reactivity. So the first big insight I had was with physical pain during my first seven days there, the intensity and the austerity of that retreat. It was just like unlike anything I had done. And my back was just completely inflamed Mm. from sitting all day long and sitting on this thin mattress. And so I would sit and it was like if you've ever like broken a rib or pulled a muscle in your back and that feeling, like especially if you sneeze, you're just like bracing against it entirely. Mm. My whole back felt like that like 24-7. And so even just breathing was painful. And um, and I, I just remember sitting there and I said, I got to leave. Like, I, I can't, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this for six months. I yeah. can't even, I can hardly do this for another, another hour. So I had this orientation. I was going to go. And on the day that I was planning to go to the front desk and leave, I, something opened up and it was just like, well, you're going to leave anyway. Might as well just try to like <laughs> be with the pain for another few hours. Yeah. And so I, I opened up to it with a little more curiosity. And one of the things I was, I was noticing is that the pain, the pain would come up and, and then the thought, a thought would arise of, oh my God, I hate this. Mm -hmm. I hate this pain. Why am I in pain? No one else seems like they're in pain. I can't do this anymore. Meditation's dumb. (laughs) And then I was watching those thoughts. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then those thoughts would then trigger anger Mm. and emotion. And then the anger would actually exacerbate the physical pain. And and, Mm. which was a very interesting combination to me that I'd never seen before. Yeah. It was like, whoa, there is this like insidious loop happening where there's physical pain we could call that primary pain. I couldn't really do anything about it as long as I was going to be there. But then there was a secondary pain of the thoughts and the emotions I was caking on top of it. And and the whole of it was greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. And so the, the just being with that, the stillness and the silence and the examining of it, it brought out its own wisdom mm-hmm. without really even needing to think about it. Mm-hmm. I was just observing and seeing patterns. And the observation itself brought into question of like, what would a different way of relating do mm-hmm. to my experience? What would it be like to, instead of fueling the thoughts, actually just be with the direct sensations of the pain mm-hmm. or to show the pain like love or compassion, or instead of projecting my inability to do this outward onto the monastery and it's a bad monastery. No one knows how to teach. (laughs) Just go like, yeah, of course this is hard and it might not last forever. Like, and so all of those things were just a natural extension of observation of my experience. That's one reason why like a very rudimentary definition of wisdom could just be curiosity times experience. Mm. And like the more you pay attention, the more we develop an understanding, Mm. at least in this context. And so what happened from there is I, I learned I was able to turn up or down the amount that I was suffering mm. in, in my experience based on how I was relating to it. And I share that first story because that really becomes the foundation for basically everything else that I learned, which was the more I paid attention, 
the more I just was able to understand patterns and mm. distorted deep beliefs about who I needed to be in order to be happy or how I needed to relate or all the ways I would beat myself up. Like I had such high standards for myself, like my orientation there, which served me well up until a point was basically like, if anyone's going to get enlightened here, it's going to be me. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's just like how long it took to see the soup of that, that I was like swimming in. Yeah. I've been there many times. (laughs) <laughs> just got to say, just, yeah, I'm th- right there with you. Yeah. And so it was so humbling. It was beautiful. It was, oh, I mean, just this, uh, so, like the one that I was embarrassed about when it came up big time was they, so they separate the men and the women there in the meditation hall. There's definitely a lot of outdated stuff, mm-hmm. especially if you go to some of these uh, Burmese monasteries. Mm. And then the men line up to go to breakfast in one line, the women line up in another line, you kind of walk down together slowly. And um, the first, when I first got there, what the men would get their food first, and then the women would go afterwards. And I just had all of these narratives in my mind of like, this is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I'm not going to be here and stand for this patriarchal system. And like, yeah. how can I get wisdom from these people who are so outdated and, and went on like that for weeks. Every time I get food, I'd just be seething. And then one day, two weeks in, it switched and the oh. women were getting their food and then the men were getting it next. And I swear, it's just how ridiculous my mind is, at least. In that moment, I was like, what's up with this? The men are supposed to get food first because I was so hungry. And so there was just like, it was a day that I was particularly hungry. And so that like starvation wasn't starvation, but that hunger like triggered this thought and this like selfish thought. And it was just like, I was just like, whoa, this is incredible to watch. That's really beautiful, actually, because just as an aside, I've been, I just finished this book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years by David Graeber. Brilliant, brilliant book. Incredible Mm. book. Highly recommended. And he examines the roots of patriarchy. And Mm. without going too much into detail, it's like patriarchy itself, which is the conclusion that he comes to, and I pretty much believe it's true, was like actually a response to a feeling of acute powerlessness on the part of men. And so Mm. you're, (laughs) you're like very personal experience of like this hunger that every human being experiences, right? This experience, this moment of hunger, like arose in you and you watched it produce this feeling of entitlement of like, why aren't the men going first? And it's like, that is a microcosm of what happened on a societal scale. And it's so important to be able, just want to reiterate, to be able to meet that observation with loving awareness mm-hmm. as like a first step, as a first step, perhaps the only step, I don't know, but as a first step to be able to meet that and be in awe actually allow yourself to be in awe in the realization of the pattern yeah and to include in order to transcend as as you were saying earlier yeah i think this is why i've i was really drawn to you and your work when Mm -hmm. i first came across it is it got to the core of something that i touched in myself Mm -hmm. and like what the actual seeds of real transformation were for me in this context we're talking more about gender Mm -hmm. but the amount of context I could talk about it through race Mm -hmm. other aspects of identity and where the deepest shifts in me happened Mm. were were really being able to see the seeds 
of destruction and othering from like a spacious, loving place. Mm. And that didn't mean allowing them. Mm -hmm. It was actually the opposite to not then add more shame, which would then like lead to more distorted action. There was like an ability to see that and go, oh, and then also understand like how this happens for others and that this is so much related to control and unsafety or control being a a byproduct of not feeling safe. Right. Yeah. And that the powerlessness that you talk about as like the root of like men feeling powerless that resonates to me with me a hundred percent. And then like what extends from that of like structure, control, um, tears, Mm -hmm. hierarchy, and like all of which can have their merit in different ways, but you can just see how a dysfunctional system can get built on the seeds of I'm scared with how to be me and how to be human and chaos. Yeah. Yeah. The masculine doesn't like chaos. (laughs) We won't get into masculine feminine energy. So I mean, we can, but I don't think we have time. I will say though, that the reframe for me is yin yang because, you know, masculine and feminine, this, these terms are, are very much, um, coded and loaded in our Western mind. And I find that reframing to yin yang, which has not had the baggage. We haven't had time to associate baggage with yin yang, with that language that we do with the masculine and the feminine here in the West. And this idea of becoming integrated. I mean, I'm very into Jungian stuff and the Jungian cosmological system is all about integrating the yin and the yang. So as to become whole, and that's the work. That's another sort of like language or, um, I don't know, definitional system that I find very helpful when we're talking yeah. about gender or when we're not talking about gender, quite frankly, because it like it manifests in everything. Right. It's um, it's in many ways the ground of being itself. Right. So, yeah, but that's very tricky. Maybe we can have another podcast. <laughs> yeah, talk about that. I've been looking for alternative language on that. There was mm. one, another one like moon energy and something else. But yeah, yin and yang, I think that's a good I hope we start moving there with because there's important thread energetic threads to be explored there and yeah. the binary of masculine feminine and everything that's loaded into that and for understandable ways of like pushing back on what's loaded into it. Yeah. It, it just yeah, it hasn't been a useful way of orienting. It's so interesting to me because what we're talking about here is terms and even we're talking about talking, right? We're, we're we're using terms to talk about themselves and there's a kind of uh, solipsism in that. I read a few books. I mean, this is ironic, but I read a few books by this Korean monk whose name I can't pronounce, but one of the titles was Only Don't Know Mm. and another (laughs) title, another title was Dropping Ashes on the Buddha. And... (laughs) And there's this idea and it's related to bringing that expansiveness around your thoughts and creating spaciousness. The element of air is is present here, right? Yeah. Creating spaciousness around what you assume to be the very foundations of your being, but which is actually when you realize the foundations of your being is elusive and you will never be able to grasp the foundations of your being because it's elusive. This goes back to what we talked about earlier with the concept of, you know, I think, therefore I am. And this alternate system, which compels us and challenges us and calls us to listen and to hear the space in between the words that are constantly permeating our thoughts and our thought path. Because we, I personally, I know that other people may be different. They may see images, but I have an internal monologue and I hear my internal monologue in words and it has been such an interest. I'm only just tasting it now for the first time. It's been such an interesting move to hear the space in between the words 
that rise and fall in my mm-hmm. thought patterns. So even mm-hmm. the words like masculine, feminine, we don't stop and to pause long enough and hear the space in between those words and realize that these are just words <laughs> yeah. that we've attached, you know, centuries, thousands of years of meaning onto a composite that we assume fell from the sky, but which actually has been a process, a process of constant continuation, continual development. So well said. Yeah. May we all commit to a listening practice. <laughs> Amen. Oh man. Beautiful. Yeah. So we're getting to the end of our time together and I hope we will have more time together in future, in future times to speak with each other. Is there anything you'd like to leave with our audience, Corey? It's been such a gift to speak with you today. Um, any last words of yeah. wisdom or, yeah. Being human, the more I do it, the more I'm humbled by it and the more compassion I, I have for just anyone who is waking up each day and, and leaning into it with curiosity and just like a willingness to understand and to grow and to check oneself and everything and to learn to put up boundaries and navigate conflict. And so the word that's been characterizing a lot of my experience and that I shared briefly here, and I'll I'll leave everyone with is uh, permission, Mm. permission to be confused, permission (laughs) to not know, permission to get hurt, permission to be triggered, permission to feel joy and to let it saturate you to your core. Mm. It's just one big thing. We're all fumbling our way through and we're doing our best. And it's also permission (laughs) to be angry when other people aren't doing it right. And to like, let that, let that fuel something and all of it. I don't have the answers, but the more I pay attention to my experience, the more space I have for the many expressions of it. And uh, I think the more we can hold our own complexity, the more we can hold the complexity of others. Mm, Beautifully said. This is 100% what we're trying to teach at the Theory of Enchantment. Mm. That is it in a nutshell. If you can hold the complexity of your own being, you can hold and meet the complexity of the other. Because really there's no separation, ultimately, at the end of the day. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your work, truly. Thank you so much. Uh, I do. Yeah. I am signed up for your uh, texting uh, notifications. Cool. <laughs> so nice. So thank you for that. And for anyone who's listening, please feel free to sign up for for Corey's texting. They're they're really just, just great doses of wisdom every day that you can get into your inbox. So yeah, we'll, we'll let you know when it's out. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Great. Thanks, Chloe. Take care. Take care. Be well. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.